0: Hello and welcome to episode 106 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. This interview is part of a series we're doing with the African Studies Association and was recorded at their 59th annual meeting in Washington, D.C.
1: I'm Jessica Ochberger, incoming Africana librarian at Michigan State and currently senior research fellow at the Southern African Institute for Policy and Research in Lusaka, Zambia.
2: And I'm Peter Lim.
1: Our distinguished guests are Nicholas van der Waal and Michael Wallman. Professor van der Waal is Maxwell M Upson Professor of Government and Director Mario Inondi Center for International Studies at Cornell University, where his teaching and research focuses on comparative politics in Africa. Professor van der Waal has published widely on the political economy of development in Africa, as well as on African elections, including recent articles and chapters on valence issues in African elections, democracy and clientelism, and electoral competition. Dr. Wallman is assistant professor of political science at the University of Missouri. He received his PhD from Lund University in Sweden in 2012 and has previously held research and teaching positions at the London School of Economics, the University of Texas, Austin, and the German Institute of Global and Area Studies, Hamburg. Dr. Raman also specializes in comparative politics and the issues of democratization, specifically in Malawi and, more recently, Zambia. He is the co-editor of the 2015 book, The Malawi 2014 Tripartite Elections, and two forthcoming articles on incumbent parties in African politics. Welcome, Nick and Michael. We are happy to have you here. On August 11th of this year, Zambia held presidential and parliamentary elections. The entire electoral process has been mired in controversy since presidential by-elections in January of last year. During the year and a half of campaigning up to the election, the incumbent Patriotic Front Party, which won with 48.33% of the vote in 2015, limited the ability of the opposition United Party for National Development, or UPND, to mobilize. Permits were not granted for rallies. Opposition press, including the popular The Post newspaper, was closed, and violence was rife amongst the cadres of both parties. Incumbent President Edgar Lungu was declared the winner by a narrow margin several days later, a result which was contested by UPND opposition in an unsuccessful constitutional court case. Lungu was sworn in on 13th of September. Tomorrow, you're both on the panel, the 2016 Zambian Elections, Structures, Conduct, and Outcomes, which explores issues related to this election, including electoral violence, political defection, and election quality. Michael, can you speak a bit about your research on electoral manipulation and your initial reflections on the most recent election based on your observations in Zambia and your preliminary results?
3: Yeah, most certainly. Um, So what we did for this election was... um, as a kind of a a method that I've previously used for Malawi, which is a way to try to survey local experiences with manipulation across the country. Um, So we teamed up with two of the the key election observers, domestic election observers in Zambia called FODEP and SACORD, and we used their election monitors from all constituencies around Zambia uh, to monitor what kind of incidents of manipulation that they saw. Uh, The idea is to be able to map and contrast different constituencies around the country uh, to see where do we have problems with manipulation and what kind of manipulation do we see in different places. Uh, I think the thing that we've already discovered in our data is that manipulation was quite widespread around Zambia, particularly violence, a lot of violence around the country. And what we found is that contrary to popular belief, this is not only an urban phenomenon. Actually, we find a lot of violence in rural spaces, and often also in spaces where we don't see much competition. So strongholds, party strongholds, uh, we see a lot of this violence. Um, I think, generally speaking, uh, when we think about the election and problems with manipulation of the election, the opposition has pushed a lot in in terms of uh, problems of tabulation fraud. And this was also kind of the centerpiece of their uh, their petition to the constitutional courts there may or may not have been large-scale tabulation fraud uh, but i think that the more important story about this election is kind of the systematic bias uh, in uh, in uh, the favor of the ruling party which is very striking and you mentioned some of these problems earlier problems with the crackdown on on the free media problems with use of state resources in campaigning, and, uh, and prevention of opposition campaigning. So this to me is a bigger story than the kind of the story that emerged from this election about tabulation fraud.
1: And you're getting ready to travel back to Zambia in a few weeks' time. Um, what are you planning on following up specifically?
3: So what I want to do is that we have all this quantitative data. We have um, surveys of almost 500 domestic election observers. Um, I want to get more to the narratives of problems. So what I'm going to do is that I'm going to travel around the country and I'm going to talk to domestic election observers uh, in particularly interesting places um, to see more about kind of the local stories of what happened. Uh, many of the theories that we have about election manipulation is that it's centralized. It's, it's something that is very planned uh, from a central, uh, central place, uh, but a lot of manipulation is actually very local and, um, and has to do with local election um, dynamics, and this is what I'm trying to capture in my research. Does this also
2: have a, a sort of an urban-rural dimension? You mentioned that earlier. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that theme?
3: Absolutely. And, but I think that there is, from the kind of data that we're getting, uh, I think we have a quite biased idea of what is going on in these elections. Um, so there is always a lot of focus on the urban areas. So urban areas are the places where we have active civil society. This is where all the journalists are based. This is where the international observers tend to drink their gin and tonics in the nighttime. Hmm. So this is. Uh, the kind of place that seems to be very much on everyone's mind. Uh, But there is a lot of things going on in the rural areas, and the level of coercion is often as high or not higher in these very kind of strongly dominated places where there is very little political competition and where there is often very deliberate uh, attempts to kind of limit that kind of competition. Um, So to get more systematically at the stories from the rural uh, perspective I think is absolutely vital to understand these selections
1: I completely agree with you Michael that We need to be paying attention to different kinds of manipulation, but this sort of actual manipulation of votes is something that's been coming up a lot in the last few weeks in Zambia. And in the past two weeks, a lot has changed. Um, The results of a few key parliamentary elections have been nullified in court, including the Lusaka central seat of Margaret Monakatwe, the Minister of Commerce, Trade, and Industry, and the Manali seat of Nkanda Luo, the Minister of Higher Education. How do you think these court rulings will affect electoral confidence in the presidential results?
3: Well, they could certainly have that kind of effect. Um, and this is very much what the opposition is trying to push for now, to say that, well, now we know that there was fraud in the parliamentary election, so therefore there has to have been fraud in, in the presidential election as well. I think I think the big problem here is that there was a presidential um a petition to the to the constitutional court about the presidential election it was never seriously handled it was thrown out on the technicality which means that we never ki- came really to the bottom of what happened in the presidential election that in itself really reduces the uh, the credibility in those results uh, i think what is important to think about when we when we we think about the the parliamentary petitions is that this is not a new thing so in two thousand and eleven, the PF decided to petition every single seat they lost, and many of these seats later were nullified as well. so this is becoming kind of a constant feature of Zambian democracy that we have elections, then there's a big rush to the courts uh, to to challenge those results, and in the end, a lot of results are nullified um, quite obviously, the fact that so many of these seats are nullified is, is not a great testimony to, to the state of Zambian democracy and, and the quality of elections in Zambia.
1: What I think has changed, though, in this election that's been different from other ones is is the constitution. So this election is actually the fifth presidential election that Zambia has held in the last decade, with two presidents dying while in office, and which created the need for presidential by-elections. A constitutional amendment in 2016, ratified in January of this year, completely overhauled this electoral process and now has candidates running with a running mate to avoid such a situation in the future. However, the constitution was also changed the process to to state the winner must win with 50.1% of the vote, or 50 plus one. In the case of the August 2016 Zambian election, Edgar Lungu of the PF party won with 50.35% of the vote, a very narrow margin that UPND has sought In the new constitutional court that has just been created, to fight, I'm wondering how, if Nick, you can speak to how this constitution issue compares in other African elections?
4: Yeah, so uh, the uh, election results were contested by the 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 side of the or the lawyers of of the of the loser, and um, uh, he had his day in court and and. Eventually, the court ruled uh, against him and ratified um, the results. On, on the one hand, uh, I think this is, this is good that, that these decisions are being mediated and, and um, sanctioned by formal institutions of, you know, of democracy. Uh, on the other hand, it's disturbing in the sense that, um, that these formal institutions seem more often than not to serve as tools of in- incumbency advantage. Uh, where does Zambia stand on, on that? I, I think it stands about in the middle uh, of, uh, of the patterns that we're seeing across the continent. Sometimes the, the courts are, are serving as you know, relatively shameless um, uh, advocates for presidential uh, incumbents, and, and sometimes uh, they're a bit more willing to contest uh, that that incumbent advantage I, compared to where Africa has been, I think this is this is, in a way, progress. It's better that these things be contested within courts rather than on the streets. Um, but it does certainly explain, it uh, go at least some of the way towards explaining why the region has had this incredible incumbent advantage, where you can count on one hand the number of sitting presidents who have. Who have lost free and fair elections, uh, or even not so free and fair elections, and and that I mean, executive power is, uh, and overly dominant executive power, I think, is the the, the problem that haunts African uh, democratization uh, and democratic consolidation today, and, and probably for 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 some time to come. So, if if there's an area for reform and for improvements, it's certainly um, the judicial independence of the courts.
2: What about, um, if you like, the powers that st- sometimes stand behind the courts? We've recently, in this country, had uh, obstacles to a Supreme Court appointment, and in your recent work you've yeah. also been uh, investigating wider socioeconomic, perhaps, aspects of of uh, of elections. and. I'm just wondering, in this uh, traditional sense of the separation of powers, that um, can we? How strong is the judiciary, say, uh, in Zambia or in, in other countries, to to hold up to these? You, you mentioned it was a step forward to have right. the contestations in right. courts, and yes, yeah, certainly. But how reliable will this be over time? Do you think? Yeah.
4: So there's, there's no doubt that uh, if, if you think of the three branches of government as exercising uh, horizontal accountability on each other, there's no doubt that the weak link in the chain in Africa today is the judiciary, even more than the legislature. And I think we would all agree that, that not all legislatures across the continent are, are able to um, uh, enforce this horizontal accountability. But this is particularly, I think, weak on the judicial side, not least in part because You know, at the at the grassroots level, uh, on the day-to-day operation, the judiciary is dependent on the executive, and appointments are made through the executive. And it's very in that circumstance, it's very hard to assert judicial independence. The problem in the U.S. is a bit different because uh, you know the judges are appointed by the Senate. The Senate's under now Republican control, or before the uh, Republicans exercise a very very effective veto. On all democratic appointments, but but it's the same nature of the problem: the politicization of the courts, which almost invariably uh, weakens uh, their democratic uh, impact. But again, it's better that that this is what we're arguing, uh, rather than you know uh, each party with its own militia fighting it out in the streets, which uh, is one of the alternatives that 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 haunts Africa. Now, if you ask me about the more sort of political economy dimension to it. You know, the other story is that uh, Zambia just has finished a really nice decade of economic growth. Uh, a lot of the problems that the country was mired in in the 90s, finally it seemed to have overcome. And now the recession is about to come back big time. And I, my, I, my suspicion is that a lot of these political uh, struggles um, will be exacerbated uh, considerably uh, uh, by the, the, uh, the coming recession or I guess it's already here yeah.
3: it was a strange um, strange election campaign in that sense it was uh, everyone saw that the the state the economy is in and the fact that there are there are going to be uh, interventions by by uh, the IMF but the election was almost kind of contested in a bubble uh, there was very little uh, kind of conversation about this and This was something that barely touched the agenda at all, which is is a little bit surprising. Um, The opposition tried at some points to kind of uh, point to the economic failures of of the incumbent regime. Uh, As you may know, there was a very kind of successful tenure of of the MMD for a long time, at least in macroeconomic terms. Um, But the PF has really... Delivered some some very bad economic uh, outputs, but but this is something that was barely discussed in the in the election campaign
4: Perhaps this was uh, Mina's, uh real failure, right? It was mm. Not uh, since he was the private sector guy who was going to bring growth and he, he couldn't get the narrative of the election to be about that
3: Yeah, so instead there was there was more discussion about um, very kind of tangible outcomes from from the PF. So so what they tried to point to was not so much kind of the uh, the macroeconomic prog- uh, progress, but instead um, very physical kind of improvements. Uh, see how many roads we built. Uh, see how many hospitals mm. we built.
2: And another physical aspect. There was some some violence, and I, I remember in the '90s, an old friend uh, Roger Chongwei, who was a judicial mm. uh, person. Uh, traveling with Kenneth Kaunda, and, and a bullet grazed his hair. and uh, but So there, there
3: was this element of physicality? Violence um, was a very prominent part of this election uh, campaign, which is, is uh, unusual for Zambia. Mm-hmm. Zambia is normally seen as, as one of the countries on the continent that have peaceful elections. Uh, but violence was, uh, I'd say, systematic in this election. Uh, if you look at the number of fatalities, it's not that high, uh, but low-scale violence uh, was very much a part of, of the campaign, and there is some kind of development um, towards higher levels of violence, and I'm afraid that the, the actual outcome of the election has not discouraged violence in the future. Um, so there was a lot of talk about what will be the electoral consequences of violence, and in political science we have different theories about what is it that violence does. Hmm. Uh, does it decrease turnout, uh, especially among uh, rivals? Uh, could it even have an adverse effect in the way that the perpetrators of violence get punished at the polls? Um, what we saw in the Zambian election was that none of this really happened. Uh, actually, it seems like violence hmm. as an electoral tool um, was, uh, was quite effective, particularly to kind of discourage increased uh, increased um, opposition in the urban areas. So if you were driving around Lusaka, you could barely see any UPND posters or any UPND regalia uh, because there was a lot of uh, fear. Um, and, and so in that sense, it seems like violence was quite effective as an electoral tool, unfortunately.
1: I have a broader question following up on that. Um, about the international community and the way they reacted to this election. They were very quick election monitors, different embassies, governments, to call the Zambian elections free and fair, despite speaking out prior to the elections about this violence and limitations of speech and press, of which there were many, Um, and the contestation of the election result by the opposition party after the election. Do these quick endorsements by this international Community of voices limit the potential of the democratic process in African countries.
4: I think it, it depends on a case by case basis, um, but but certainly, look the the international community has very very low standards uh, for Africa, and uh, the, the the truth of the matter is is that uh, Africans are on their own if if they want to improve the quality of of democracy because the standards and the the sort of support. Uh, they will get from uh, the West will always be a very very low standard because the West prefers uh, stability and and economic growth and uh, you know foreign direct investments uh, by Western companies to um, uh, an improved democracy. That's just the, that's just the reality. And I, I think it's healthy for Africans to realize that it's up to them to improve their democracies, not to look to the West.
3: This is a problem with international election observation, is that uh, the observers have many different, um, different goals. And as, as Nick says, I mean, it seems often that the paramount goal is uh, stability and security. Uh, And uh, the Zambian election would be a good example of this, where you could very easily see how this election could escalate into large-scale violence. We saw some tendencies of this in the southern province after the election. This could have been much more large-scale. On kind of thinking about it in a broader sense, you can you can also ask uh, what kind of legitimacy do they give to the process? It is quite common that, that these kind of international monitoring statements uh, can be used by incumbent regimes that have engaged in, a, in an electoral campaign with quite... Uh, significant um, uh, significant deficiencies can use it as a statement to kind of endorse the election. Right. In the end, it seems like typically the domestic election observers are harsher in their statements, and we saw this in Zambia, in Malawi, and other cases that I've studied closely. This was very much the case as well.
4: I mean, given the, I think Michael's right. Uh, given the the record of incumbent. Uh, advantage. Uh, the donors are put in the awkward position of if they do not validate an election won by an incumbent. Um, diplomatically, that is probably the person that they will have to work with uh, afterwards, right? So uh, as a result, they, they, they're more likely to, to just uh, tolerate some uh, shenanigans by the incumbent and promote their major objective, which is political stability.
2: Thank you both for joining us on the Here. on the ASA inaugural annual meeting podcast series and Africa Past and Present. You're most welcome. Thank you
3: very much. Thank you.
0: Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix. Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu.